God and Heavenly Father, how we do uh, give thanks to you for calling us to yourself. We acknowledge that you are indeed the true and the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. We thank you that you have come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and revealed your great love. And we thank you, our Father, that you have provided us in him a full and complete redemption, the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of everlasting life. We come to you, O Lord, as sinners, acknowledging that you are holy and we are not. Forgive our sins, we pray, and accept our worship through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's continue to worship by singing hymn, uh, Psalm 25b. And uh, before uh, Sarah begins to play, she's going to play this through because... Uh, this is a slightly new tune, but an easy tune, and so I'm going to let, uh, please listen as she plays it through a couple.
seated. Our scripture reading from the New Testament tonight is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. Here, uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus looking for a sign. He tells them that no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah, which that sign was given to them, and they did not believe. He also warns the disciples against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, The disciples thought he was talking about bread when he said, beware of the leaven. They thought he was talking about bread, and he had to tell them, no, he was talking about the teachings of the Pharisees. Then we have that passage that is so well known of Peter's confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Then the promise to Peter, who represents the apostles at this time, and the earliest preaching of the gospel, promised to Peter that uh, he will have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I thought I might share, I can dig it out here, a statement about that, because that is sometimes a, a question. What does Jesus mean when he talks about the keys of the kingdom? There's a beautiful question and answer to that in the uh, Heidelberg Catechism, what are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching, answer, the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline and repentance. Both preaching and discipline open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. And the follow-up question to that is, how does preaching the gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? The answer is, according to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to each and every believer that as often as he accepts the gospel promise and true faith, God, because of what Christ has done, truly forgives his sins. Beautiful statement. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the anger of God and eternal condemnation rest upon them. And then this final sentence, God's judgment, both in the life, in this life, and in the life to come, is based upon the gospel testimony in this life. And so our response to that testimony then becomes critical to us. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. I'll hear the word of God as it is read from Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. And when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not, do you not yet perceive? Do you not Remember the five loaves from the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood 
that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's become, come before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do give thanks to you, for you are the eternal God, the living God. You are the one who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them the sun and the moon and the stars. You made the beauty that we see about us, and you made all of the various seasons with all of their characteristics. And Father, you have determined and placed the, the peoples of the world and the nations and the languages and the boundaries. And you have set a boundary around the sea, and the sand says you can come so far and no further. But truly, O Lord, you are great and powerful. You are mighty in all that you have done. We thank you that you are the God who has done great and marvelous deeds on behalf of your covenant and your covenant people. We thank you for the fact that you entered into a covenant with your people, beginning with Abraham and then uh, revealing yourself at Mount Sinai as the people you delivered from Egypt gathered there at the foot of Mount Sinai to hear your law. Truly, O God, you showed them your great might and power and your love. Father, like Israel of old, we recognize that we also have not been obedient to your covenant. We have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. We ask that you would forgive our sins and that you would uh, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And our Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us sensitive, that you would help us to know when we have sinned, that you would convict us, and that we might immediately repent of our sins and ask, O God, that you would forgive us and seek reconciliation with all that that, uh, we come in contact with. O Lord, we do pray that you would help us and strengthen us in our daily walk We pray, our Father, that you would enable us to glorify you in everything that we do, whether it's playing sports on the fields, whether it's the school that we do and the classes we participate in and the tests that we take, whether it's our work and our jobs and all that uh, you have given us to do in the earth. Oh, Lord, we do pray that we would be lights and that you would enable us that uh, we might give glory to you and be a witness to the, what you have done in Christ for us. Father, tonight we would bring to you our petitions. We think of Deb Connor and we ask for your healing upon her body. We pray that you would uh, heal her and enable her to be strengthened day by day. We pray for Jesse perez Algorin. We thank you that both uh, she was able to have these surgeries. We do pray that you would continue to heal her body, that she might be strengthened. We pray as well, O Lord, that you would bless her and that you would uh, strengthen her in faith and trust in you. We pray, our Father, for uh, 
uh, all of the ways in which you have blessed this congregation. We think of the ministries that take place here. We think of the work that is done in teaching Sunday school and the teachers who faithfully prepare lessons. We thank you, Father, for uh, the ESL program and all that is done uh, by so many to uh, help those who live in our community learn the English language. We pray your blessing upon that. There would be, that there would be many opportunities to share the truth of the gospel with them. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless and that you would help. We thank you for the deacons of this church and the elders. We thank you for their faithful service to you many over many years. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing upon this congregation. We thank you for our pastor, Rob, and his family. We pray for them as they are away this evening and uh, for uh, the, the uh, service that they are involved in in Connecticut. We pray your blessing upon them. We pray especially for this young man, Lucas, who is... Uh, who has been rushed to Boston Hospital, Lord, uh, you know, and you know uh, uh, the agony um, and sometimes just such difficulty in not knowing. And so we pray your protection upon this young man, that you would heal him. We ask your blessing upon the doctors, that you would give them wisdom, that you would be especially present in this time. And may it be, O God, that he might know your great grace and mercy in his life and that his parents would witness this and give glory to you. Oh, how we pray for this. Pray for our brother, Jim Pendrick. Uh, We lift him up to you. We know he's dealing with a lot of different things at this time in his life, and we pray that you would be near to him and bless him. We pray for Christy Bennett and the spotty vision that she's been experiencing. We ask, oh God, that this would soon heal as well. Lord, many many other things we can pray for. We think of our missionaries. We pray for... Uh, Alex and Maggie Halbert in Honduras, and Abe and Rachel Powell. We pray for, especially for, as uh, Abe has asked for prayer for their son James. And James, having uh, going to school and experiencing just the difficulty of, uh, of adjusting to all that is new and uh, involved in that, and we do pray for James. Would you be near to this little boy? Would you give him physical strength and stamina and emotional strength and stamina in difficult circumstances? Oh, Lord, we thank you for the Powell family. Please bless them in their labors for you. And, oh, Lord, we do pray for the work of the ministry of the gospel throughout our region. How we long to see uh, many come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ And may it be, O God, that you would build up your church, and may it be that many would come to know you, and we would see it and see your mighty works again in our day. We ask all of these things, uh, trusting in your promises, knowing that you are a God who has redeemed us in Christ Jesus our Lord, and our trust is in him alone. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. At this time, we'll receive the uh, evening offering.
to get vengeance on the armies of Syria and says, ask Elisha permission to put them to death. And Elisha said, no, and he, they give them a feast instead. They feed them and they give them a feast and they send them back home. And at the end of, in, in verse 23, um, we read that after they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. So um, uh, for, there's a period of peace between Syria and Israel. But now it seems as we look tonight uh, at, at the passage we're going to look at that uh, this period of peace uh, is no more, and Syria comes to attack Samaria. We're going to see um, how this plays out and uh, what happens as a result of this. In uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 24, Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army, and he went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dung's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your, give your son that we, may eat, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. And so we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his soldiers' shoulders today. And Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And when he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. We give thanks to you, eternal God, because you have given us uh, your word in all of its fullness and all of all all of it uh, is your inspired by your Holy Spirit and is for our edification. So as we come to your word tonight, we pray that you would help us to see those things uh, that we need to see and to understand things that we need to understand and that we would respond in faith and trust in the promise of the gospel that comes to us in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that we may see the urgency and the importance of our individual response to that. We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. 
So as I mentioned, uh, tensions be between uh, the country of Syria to the north and Israel just to the south of Syria. Damascus is the capital of Syria. Samaria, the city that is under siege in the passage we just read, is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. It is where the king is, and it is where Elisha lives. And uh, I want to look at this passage under three headings. And the first is this, God's justice and the bitter consequences of sin. God's justice and the bitter consequences of sin. Secondly, fake repentance revealed. Heard of fake news. Fake repentance revealed. And thirdly, a remarkable promise that is met with blank disbelief. First, God's justice and the bitter consequences of sin. Second, fake repentance revealed. And third, a remarkable promise that is met with unbelief. First of all, let's look together at the first part of the passage that we read tonight, and we will see that uh, the account of the siege of Samaria is what we are reading. And there was a famine at this time, and the Samarians, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the Syrians, were, were attacking in such a way that they were not allowing any food to enter the city. And that, together with the famine in Samaria, uh, made it so that it says that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. In other words, people were giving large amounts of money for the most disgusting food. They were willing to eat just about anything. And so money was worthless in this kind of an environment of extreme hunger. And so we read that uh, the king of Israel passes by uh, the gate of Samaria, and then a woman cries out to him. And uh, this woman is pleading to the king for help. And this woman reveals the fact that she is in a dispute. And we read of this. She answered when uh, he asked, what is your trouble? Verse 28, she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give me your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. What a dilemma. God, as a loving heavenly father, had entered into covenant with the people of Israel. And he had laid out for Israel his loving commandments and showed them how they must live. And he had also warned them about the consequences that would come, that would follow, if they lived as the nations that they drove out lived, if they turned away from him and followed the gods of the nations. And so it happens that the Lord allows this siege on the city of Samaria. There is this great and severe famine that drives women to eat their own children rather than starve. This tells us something of how awful sin is. It tells us something about the extremity of human depravity. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, if we begin at verse 52, we have Moses describing to Israel 
what could happen in the days ahead in Israel's history if Israel is unfaithful to him. And so these words were written in Deuteronomy 28, 52. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother and to the wife he embraces and to the last of the children whom he has left so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, before, because he has nothing left. In the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns, and the most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband that she embraces and to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns." If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. So here we read in 2 Kings chapter 6 of a vivid example of the word and the prophecy of Moses coming true in the history of the people of Israel. And it tells us something about how sin will degrade the human relationship, so much so that fathers and mothers stop caring about their children and they stop feeding them when they're hungry. And not only that, but in the dire distress that they are in, actually feeding their own children. Isaiah 49, 15 says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? The fact that this was happening to Israel and the fact that it was so carefully described ahead of time and here in 2 Kings, it is carefully described how this was fulfilled in the history of Samaria is meant to be shocking. It is meant to uh, make you sit upright and make you realize what a serious thing it is to sin with a high hand, commit idolatry, and to commit sins against the Lord God in an unrepentant way and to violate the covenant. Eventually, though you may not experience it right away, you will experience the sorrows that come with that sin. And the, and, the, and the breaking apart of relationships, the breaking apart of relationships between husbands and wives, parents and their children, and all of this, breaking apart of society as a whole, is described in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul when he says, in the last days there will come times of great difficulty, for people will be proud, arrogant, abusive, 
disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without any self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, and reckless. Strong language describing the utter depravity of man and what the consequences of that are for men who live in disobedience against God. We were created by God to have fellowship with him. We were created by God in his image. Mankind is created in such a way by God so that God has bestowed wondrous gifts upon the human race. Think of human intelligence. Think of beauty and the arts. Think of mechanics and invention. Agriculture, science, language, literature, philosophy, all that mankind is able to do and to build demonstrates that God has created us to be noble, to be in his image and to reflect him as we live. But as we see, Israel is brought to a state of cannibalism. This same creature, made in the image of God, is capable of the harshest and most despicable deeds. The prophet Jeremiah describes this by saying, My people have exchanged their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. And it's that shock that Jeremiah describes in those words that we feel when we read this passage in 2 Kings. It's revolting. It's shocking. But it should be shocking to be treacherous to the Lord, to be disobedient to him and his covenant after all that he has done for his people. Jeremiah continues, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. See and know, the prophet Jeremiah says, see and know that it is evil, it is bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. Can we be surprised that people become separated from God, become increasingly rude? Can we be surprised that people are increasingly arrogant and self-sufficient? Can we be surprised that we see violence played out, be imitated at every turn? Can we be surprised at all of this? When the prophet Jeremiah clearly says that your own evil will chastise you, the punishment of your sin will be to live in and with that sin and the consequences of it. See and know that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. How we need to remember that. It is not a light thing. It is not a small thing when we deliberately, without repentance, turn away from God. We will experience, whether we experience it immediately, we will experience the bitterness and the heartbreak that comes from living outside of the boundaries of God's love. The writer of Hebrews says, For since the message that was declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the first thing that we see here is something of the consequences of sin upon mankind. We see it played out in the most horrible of sins. Second thing that we notice in this passage is fake repentance exposed. 
What was the king's response when the woman describes her dilemma? Verse 30, when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body. And he said, may God do so to me, and more also. That is, he took an oath. If the head of Elisha, the son of Shephet, remains on his shoulders today. The only thing that a king in his position should do is to utterly humble himself before the Lord, recognizing that what he has just heard is an indication of the Lord's judgment upon his people for their idolatry and their sinful behavior. So, but that is not what the king does. He does not humble himself before the Lord. He doesn't recognize that this is God's doing. And he doesn't wait for the Lord then to bring deliverance. King Jehoram has been very much not doing this. But what he is doing is interesting. He's wearing sackcloth under his clothes. And so when he tears his clothes, he has sackcloth on. And it's a very interesting thing. It is probably, commentators say, it was probably the same sackcloth that his father wore that we're told about in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 27. His father Ahab put on sackcloth and repented before the Lord. You might remember that the Lord actually responded to Ahab's repentance as he uh, confessed his need for the Lord. As superficial as that was, yet God showed Ahab mercy. And it seems as though his son Jehoram is trying to do the same thing that his father had done, probably wearing the same thing, and hoping that God would uh, hear, uh, that, that it would come to his rescue uh, because of this. So I would take this sackcloth as a sign of superficial and false repentance. Jehoram's repentance was shallow. It was not real. How do we know that? How do you know that Jehoram's repentance was not real? It was instead an attempt to manipulate God, to get God to do something, but it was not heartbroken repentance. You know what repentance is? Repentance is described in Psalm 51. If you ever want to know what repentance is, read Psalm 51, where David cries to the Lord in absolute sorrow and full-throated confession of his sin. Here we don't see that. We don't see that. We see a man wearing sackcloth. And sackcloth isn't going to do it. When the incident of the two mothers becomes known to Jehoram, what does he do? He gets mad. He gets mad. I've had enough, he says. I can't take this anymore. I'm tired of waiting for God. I'm tired of praying and waiting for God to do something. God's never going to do anything. This is his fault, and it's Elisha the prophet's fault. And Elisha the prophet will pay the price. And so he sends a messenger to Elisha to get revenge upon him. The messenger is sent and the door is shut and barricaded, but the communication nevertheless takes place. And he says, why should I wait any longer? And in saying this, the king shows himself to be a true son of his father Ahab who hated, remember that Ahab hated Elijah, and he blamed Elijah for the famine that Israel suffered in his day. You remember what Ahab said to Elijah when uh, he finally saw Elijah. Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? You notice who's to blame. It's the prophet who is to blame. It's not Ahab. It's the prophet Elijah that's to blame. And Elijah tells him so. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord 
and you followed Baal's. So, Elisha is now the object of Ahab's son's rage in exactly the same way. He wants to take Elisha's head. He wants to put him to death. So he's mad. He's lost all patience. And so it is with fake repentance. Fake repentance is basically when we come to the Lord and we set the terms for him. We say to him, Lord, I want you to do this and this and this. We wait. It doesn't seem that God is doing what we are praying for. We say it again, and we say it again, and we wait, and we wait. It doesn't seem that God answers, and finally we say, okay, well, that means God isn't real. That means God isn't hearing my prayer. And we do the same thing that the king of Israel did. We lose patience. We get tired of waiting, and we get angry. It's a remarkable thing that the king would not believe that it was his own doing. It was his own unbelief. It was his own Baal worship. It was his own uh, leadership that is the cause of the problems in Israel. So it is often the case that we don't realize that we ourselves have not repented of our sin. We ourselves have not fully confessed and owned what we have done. And we direct our anger to God. We say, why is God doing this to me? Why has he brought this into my life? I don't deserve this. What did I do to deserve this? And we blame God and we become angry. Well, thirdly, we see a remarkable promise that is met with unbelief. And so... Uh, uh, the king's messenger comes to the door. The door is shut. Elisha is with the elders. And uh, while he's speaking to the elders, while he's telling them that this messenger is coming and that he wants to take off his head, uh, they come knocking on the door in verse 33. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down and he said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for it any longer? And then we hear an amazing promise in in the first verse of chapter 7. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow at about this time, a seah of the fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Wow. Wow. What a promise. Here we have conditions so horrible that people cannot find food to eat. And they're eating uh, their own children. And yet, Elisha gives this remarkable promise that this, once again, flour will be sold for a shekel. And two seas of barley for a shekel. In other words, food will be plentiful tomorrow. And notice how specific this is. It may have been that Elisha had told the king and assured uh, Jehoram that uh, he should wait upon the Lord for him to show mercy, and that God would show mercy in due time. But now Elisha gives not an indefinite promise that God would do something, but he says specifically An exact promise, tomorrow at this time. Tomorrow at this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. This is such a remarkable promise that the king's messenger could not believe it. It is not possible. That's basically what he says. Verse 2, then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So a remarkable promise is given. 
and this remarkable promise is not believed. It is impossible. Even God couldn't do that. God could not do that. Even if the windows of heaven were to be opened, it's not possible for that to happen. And so this man demonstrated his own unbelief. And it makes us ask the question, how do we respond to the promises that God gives to us? The promises that if considered merely by the natural man don't seem possible. Even if we take the whole of the revelation of Scripture itself, the natural man looks at that revelation and says, Ah, hogwash. It's not true. It's not possible. This is all pie in the sky. And we get that kind of response when you talk to someone who is not a believer about the message and the story of the Bible and the great unfolding of God's redemption and his redemption through Jesus Christ. It is that response to a remarkable promise that determines a person's eternal fate. Consider the promises of God that he's made to us in Christ. For example, Peter says, he has granted to us Precious, his precious and very great promises so that through them we may be partakers of the divine nature. What an amazing thing that we who are created of dust, we who have been lost in sin and guilt and misery, that God should promise to bring us into his heavenly home and to make us one with Jesus Christ and to give us eternal and everlasting life and to give us his Holy Spirit. What a remarkable, unbelievable thing this is. Peter calls it a very precious and a very great promise. How do we respond to that promise? Consider another promise. A promise that comes from uh, Peter... Uh, I'm sorry, from uh, John, in 1 John. He says this, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, and we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is an amazing promise that God should wash you clean as he washed Naaman's skin clean. That he should make you to be pure and spotless and undefiled, the bride of his son. That God should do such things and that you may know even this night as that is read to you tonight that if you uh, confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And how I want you to know that and to know it in the depths of your heart and to have confidence in it that God indeed has done that and that he has forgiven your sins, he has set you free. Because that is what faith is. That is what faith in the promise is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What are the things we hope for? They are the things promised to us. Notice it's assurance. It's a conviction of things not seen. May God give you that assurance and that conviction of things not seen. What did Abraham do when he was given the promise? He was not able to see it in his lifetime. Nevertheless, what was he convinced of? He was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And the writer of Hebrews says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so when we, when we believe the promise of God, when this man heard Elisha, he should have known who he was hearing. He should have known that he was hearing the word, not of man, but of God. And that it was God who was speaking to him, and it was blasphemous of him to say, no, this is not possible. 
It is to call God a liar. To not believe his promise is to call God a liar. And we get into the depths of this. It becomes a real struggle for us when we consider at times our consciences are so overladen with our own sense of failure. Sometimes we're all overweighted with the sense that we have not lived up to what we should be. And our conscience convicts us. And I love that statement of Martin Luther. And I've repeated it to myself many times. Do not let conscience overspeak the word of God. The word of God triumphs over my sin. The promise of God triumphs over my sin. And this man who heard Elisha give to him a promise that to all human estimation couldn't possibly happen. He outrightly said that it was impossible even if the windows of heaven were open. And he was judged for his unbelief. And so Elisha says to him, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat it. That is, he would die. And we're going we're gonna to find out about that uh, next time. You can say, that's why you have to keep coming back. It, it's an unfolding story. But what I want to impress upon us tonight, and, I, and I, want, I want all of us to see the, the depths of the degradation of sin on the one hand, the, 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 the horror of it. Be afraid of it. Be afraid of it. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And on the other hand, I want us to see the greatness of grace of God. Here is Samaria. What is Samaria? An idol-worshiping people. They didn't deserve anything from God. And yet God continues. Yes, they suffered. But there was no repentance. In spite of the lack of repentance, God continued to shower his grace and mercy upon them. And may it be that the same would be true of you tonight and me tonight, that we would take those promises that sometimes seem to you unbelievable. Hold fast. Hold fast. Believe the promises given to you in Christ Jesus. They're yours. They're great. And they're precious. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you, O Lord, for your Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and our need for you. We ask, O Lord, that you would continue to do this. But most of all, we pray that you would make us to be those who are convinced, who believe with all of our heart that that which you have spoken to us in Christ, that good news that has come to us in Christ, is indeed true and that you have given to us eternal life. We ask this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As a closing hymn tonight, we're going to sing together uh, a very familiar hymn, 433, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound.
of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.